Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. My guest on this episode is Andy Ellis, a managing partner at Localized Capital in Pittsburgh, which, as the name suggests, focuses on investing in companies and entrepreneurs around the Pittsburgh area. Little known fact about me, I used to live in Pittsburgh as a young kid and was extra excited for this conversation because of that. Andy grew up in Pittsburgh, worked in Southern California, and eventually moved back to Pittsburgh to help form Localize. Andy and I talk extensively about the structure of Localize and how they chose to invest in companies over a very long term, with a core idea being to look for owners who think not just in years, but generations. You may have heard of the concept of finite and infinite games, a concept written about by author James Carse. A finite game has known players, a beginning and end, and set rules, whereas infinite games have known and unknown players, no end, evolving rules, and the goal is to perpetuate the game. If this concept sounds interesting, this conversation is for you as we discuss this concept in the context of private equity and entrepreneurship. Please enjoy the episode. Went to school in Cleveland, Ohio, returned home to Pittsburgh after school and started with an investment management firm here in Pittsburgh, was on an internal sales desk here in Pittsburgh for a few years before uh, having the opportunity to move to an external sales position in Southern California. So was able to stay with the same company, continue to work with all the people that I had been working with, but was able to kind of move across the country, live in a new place and, and meet new people. So spent a little over six years in Southern California in a few different beach towns when I kind of came up with the idea for uh, Localize, which is the current thing that I'm doing. And Pittsburgh was kind of a natural place to come and kind of test the thesis. And I can kind of dive into that if you'd like. So being from Pittsburgh, it was convenient, easy, and comfortable, and moving from a place that was very high cost and prohibitive toward like uh, taking risks, moving back to a place that we were very familiar with and that has a <laughs> relatively or comparatively very low cost of living, put us in a position with the amount of money we had saved, kind of take the leap and to take the risk. So when I was working at the investment management firm, I had uh, made friends with a gentleman who did a lot of macro credit analysis and he was a short seller and he typically ran his portfolio from about 70 to 100% net short. I found this very intriguing for a few different reasons. One, it provided us with a product to um, sell to people that wanted to hedge equity exposure, which was a nice thing to have because uh, you know what I was doing was... I was a wholesaler of mutual funds and it was able, it, it enabled me to open up a lot of doors that otherwise would have been difficult to open. So I was drawn to it from that perspective, but more than anything, uh, I was kind of drawn to the analytical framework of, the, of my mentor who ran the portfolio that he was able to be 70 to 100% net short the market at all times and was able to withstand kind of raging bull markets, right? So you think about it, in order to do that, you have to have a high level of intellectual honesty, 
and really be able to build out an analytical framework and very stringent risk parameters. So I was really drawn to the way he viewed the world, the analytical framework or prism through which he viewed uh, what was going on in the world. So started to kind of follow that that pathway and he was very gracious with his time. I asked a million questions, a ton of very <laughs> simple questions trying to get to the root of a lot of different things. And he very frequently was recommending books to me that were extremely difficult to read. And I think that that might've been one of the ways that he weeded people out whenever they would ask him questions potentially. But like I read the books, I read some of them multiple times and highlighted and took notes and came back with questions, right? So I was really drawn to his analytical framework and the way that he thought about the world and, and how he managed portfolio risk. I had thought about potentially getting into like short selling and trying to join his team, but I also saw that it was a really tough job. And he most of the time was thought of as, you know, a pariah or an idiot. And he was very frequently alone doing his analysis and running the portfolio. Then when the market uh, hit the skids, he was like the most popular guy in the building, right? And so the, the life of a short seller can be very lonely. And that's, that would be very, very difficult for me. So didn't want to be a short seller. And at the time I was learning from him. I was, you know, that was mainly through my 20s. I guess that I was mature enough to know that I didn't know anything. I was learning a lot from him, but everything I like for every one thing I learned, there were like 15 things that I uncovered that I just didn't understand that I had had yet to learn. Right. So I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't have a clear pathway or understanding of what it is I was supposed to do with like the knowledge and thought processes that I was learning from him. So it took quite a long time to kind of come up with my own thesis and kind of take one of the things that I really admired about him too was in, in he writes every week when you go to his blog, he wasn't just reading Austrian economics and saying, I'm an, I'm, I, I subscribe to the school of Austrian thought, right? He took bits and pieces of their analytical framework and, and would weave it into his own analytical framework. And so everything from like, Keynes to the Austrian school to George Soros's Alchemy of Finance to Henry Kaufman to Kindleberger to like you name it like the list goes on and on he it was nice because I could read the books but then also read his commentary and his thought process on it which was really interesting right so here I'm learning his analytical framework and his view of the world learning about how his view of the world was informed by these things and trying to figure out, well, what's my take on that, right? Like his portfolio, like what he does is a manifestation of all of these things that he's learned. What is, what is that thing going to be for me? Right. So it, it took a long time to, to come to that. And I'm happy to say that I think I found something that I can be bullish on as opposed to be a short seller and be thought of as, as a bear, kind of a, a long winded way of, of kind of getting to the genesis of, um, what we're doing now, but one of the things that um, that we talked about a lot, I talked about a lot with my mentor, was this notion of there being two economies, and and there being the financial economy, and then there being the real economy. That was always something that kind of like intrigued me, and and I would ask him a lot of questions around that, and 
talk about regulation in one versus the other, or is, is the tail wagging the dog or is the, the dog wagging the tail, right? Because these two things kind of work in conjunction with one another. Is there correlation causation? How does that shift through time? Right. And so one of the things that brought me back to Pittsburgh that I think is so interesting and, and it kind of helped inform a little bit of what, um, what we're doing with localize there is a general gentleman named uh, Henry Hillman. The Hillman family owned a, an industrial empire. They owned many businesses. And when Henry Hillman inherited this industrial empire in the seventies, he, you know, liquidated a lot of the companies. He sold these businesses. These, these were real economy businesses. And one of the things that's so intriguing is that kind of a little known fact that Henry Hillman actually funded two very prominent, or he, he didn't fund, he seeded two very prominent private equity shops. He was 33% of KKR's first LBO fund, and he was 50% of Kleiner Perkins's first venture capital fund. So the venture, the venture aspect is kind of interesting because he wanted, given that Carnegie Mellon is here in Pittsburgh, he wanted uh, them to run Kleiner Perkins out of Pittsburgh and they told him, hell no. Uh, they were going to California and it probably was, I mean, who, you know, based on like path dependency, who knows like if that would have materially changed anything, but you know, they went to California and kind of the rest is history. Point being, he was liquidating these businesses and turning them into financial assets. And that was decades ago. And now you look around and, you know, year after year, more businesses are being turned into financial assets as opposed to privately held businesses that are, are run for different timeframes with different preferences, with different, essentially using this operating company to optimize for different outcomes. It's becoming more and more potentially uniform as a result of the capital that is buying and owning these companies looking more and more similar. You're saying the financial economy is using the real economy for different means than the real economy might intend those to be. So instead of the business owner running the business for themselves and for the way they'd like, there's a financial piece of the economy that comes in and manipulates it to a different set of means. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's maybe less about like intentionality or what this part of the economy wants or that part of the economy wants it to me has has just more to do with when when you own a private asset and you're running a private company you could op people buy and run companies for different reasons that might be one portion of your portfolio that you strictly bought and use to to run a loss to to offset some sort of gain that you get somewhere else or you know some something of that nature but when people are buying up those assets for the for the sole purpose of using it in a traditional private equity fund, those traditionally have pretty similar objectives. You know, the, the, the types of LPs that deploy capital into those funds typically have certain expectations about what type of risk it's going to bear and what type of return they can expect as a result of it and what type of time frame they can expect that in. So, I mean, again, your, the podcast, that you're doing is interesting because I, I don't know if this has existed all along or if it's just becoming more apparent as a result of 
Twitter and podcasts and things of that nature, right? And I, to, to some extent, family offices have been doing this forever. It seems that there may be some sort of a shift toward a longer term focus and having um, sustainability and survivorship and generation of un- unlevered free cash flow kind of into perpetuity as, as a more attractive option. So it seems like there could potentially be some sort of a shift. Maybe there's just more of an appetite from, from LP base to, to want to invest in that type of private asset. I don't know. And is, is localized specifically a vehicle that's backed primarily by the, the own capital of your, of the various partners or are there investors who come in as well? We're, we're in the process of raising two separate funds, two separate strategies that kind of work in conjunction with one another. I come at it from a perspective of more of like a macro perspective where it's called localized for a reason. We want to localize assets, right? So like I'm generally a happy-go-lucky guy. Again, I didn't want to be a short seller, right? But I still find myself having thoughts about beautiful cash flowing assets that are owned for the purpose of applying leverage to them and potentially flipping them down the road that are owned by a private equity firm across the country. So one example is uh, just after moving back, we we took our kids to this really great amusement park that is for small children. It's not like massive roller coasters. It's called Idlewild. It's in uh, up near Ligonier, Pennsylvania. It's east of Pittsburgh. I think it was uh, funded by the Mellon family, but it's one of the oldest parks in the country and it is a beautiful asset to our region. And I'm sitting there, I'm standing in line and looking around at all these people shelling out money for soft pretzels and slushies and buying their kids all these gadgets and, you know, having all this fun. And, uh, you know, given my previous work, I got to see what people invest in for retirement. And I couldn't help but think here, here we are standing in this beautiful asset to this region that we all support and love. And we come here and we spend our hard earned money on. And I'm looking at all the people walking around spending this money and um, I'm thinking to myself, that guy has T. Rowe Price, that guy is in Vanguard. They have all these different retirement accounts. And I bet if I stopped and asked them, they'd have very little clue what they actually own in their retirement accounts, right? Some, some of them would, some of them might know a portion of them, you know, of the assets they own, but, but generally what they're doing is they're, they're looking for income in retirement. Yet here we stand in one of the oldest parks in the entire country that's in our backyard, and it is literally owned by a private equity firm in Spain. So I, I know that we couldn't possibly repatriate all of our capital and, and invest it in all local assets, but it, it also seems to me that there's an opportunity to at least bring some of the capital home and to create a, a market whereby people who are seeking income can, can get that, you know, seeking income from assets that they understand and can see and, and feel and, and it means something to them. Uh, it seems like there's an opportunity for, for them to seek a portion of that income for retirement within, within the region. With trying to localize capital, it sounds like most of the capital for the fund you're raising from local investors. Is that a big part of your pitch to them is saying like, hey, now you can invest your money here in Pittsburgh with us? So it's not our personal capital. I, I wish that I made enough money in my previous job that I could have done this. And this is absolutely how I want to invest my wealth moving forward is to have a significant portion invested within my region in a fashion that makes sense for my long-term objectives, right? Like I, 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 
I want this region to get better. I want young people to start or continue to move here, start businesses here, work here, start families here, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it kind of dawned on me as I was living in California and I would get harassed by my aunts and uncles and I'm going to make them listen to this podcast. So they'll, they'll get to hear me say this, but they used to harass us. You know, I, I had a few cousins that lived in LA and with me and they'd say, why do I can't believe you guys live in Los Angeles. Why don't you move back to Pittsburgh? I mean, even my uncle that lived, lives in Dallas would harass us about moving away. Right. And, and it finally kind of like dawned on me a little, uh, uh, where, where I, I used to start to harass them back. And I would say, look, we followed your money. You, you, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you are some sort of professional. You make money, you pay for your, your base needs locally. Like sure, you go to local restaurants and things of that nature, but all of your excess capital, you take it and you invest it typically on the coasts. It's invested with investment firms on the coasts. Typically, a lot of the companies that you're invested in are not within this region. And then you uh, harass us millennials for moving away from this city when, when really we followed your money. The idea being that we, we want to get more money invested locally. And that's absolutely, you know, we think going to be a huge motivation for why people will invest with us, even just if it's a small portion of their, their overall net worth. So yeah, it's, it, it's the idea is to engage high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals entrepreneurs, people who still own operating companies, people who have sold operating companies and, you know, single and multifamily offices. And are they pretty excited about being able to put a dollar somewhere in the region? Does that resonate with most of them or are most of the investors you talk to still like, no, I just want the best return and wherever I get that, I don't care as much. Where do people generally fall? It's a mix and it's all personal, right? But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that I think a lot of people want to invest locally, but right now their options for doing so are like, quote unquote, high risk startups in real estate. And many of these people already own real estate locally. So their options for bringing money home are, are, are small. They don't, they don't have an opportunity. In fact, the matter is, is the majority of them, what they want and need is actually income from a stable asset. Well, we actually have that here in spades. You know, we have tons of great multi-generational family businesses that are extremely independent. They manage their businesses with very little debt. They optimize for unlevered free cash flow and they manage for survivorship. They have a playbook for how they have lasted through inflation and recessions and things of that nature. And, and they don't view their business as a financial asset. They're not trying to optimize their EBITDA to try to ratchet up their enterprise value. They just don't care. We have that mentality. We have those businesses in spades. And I think it's exactly what people, these, these yield starved investors, it's exactly what they're craving and it's in their backyard. And by explaining, you know, this is what, what we're trying to do is by explaining that that is it's so detached from how the young people coming out of Pitt and Carnegie Mellon and all the other universities locally, that is, it's the antithesis of what they, they are being taught in regards to how they should start businesses. So it's, it's, it's bringing the high net worth individuals who, who are seeking income together with the people that own these big, beautiful cash flowing assets and getting them to agree. So like the, the, the fund structure, there's two funds, but collectively we called it like a shared risk partnership. 
collectively, the stakeholders are going to share the risk to invest back into the region to motivate and push entrepreneurs to grow, to build and grow sustainable businesses with sustainable business models and, and, ha- and, and pass down the stories that these multi-generational family businesses have this like ethos and, and what's been like ingrained in them for like generations or decades. There's no, it's not being transmitted to the next generation of entrepreneurs. So like, that's the big motivation is like, if we want to see our region grow again, you know, we were the, we were the richest city in the country at the turn of the last century. And everyone's talking about how like Pittsburgh with all of our innovation and all of the tech coming out of these universities, we're going to, we're going to like light the world on fire. Like we're, we're about to arrive again. If we haven't, if we haven't already. And the irony to me is you talk to the, you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and you talk to a lot of people in the ecosystem. We ask them, we ask these young entrepreneurs to plan their exit before they've even started running a business. They are, they are starting and building the business. They're optimizing that engine to build something that is designed to be sold. And typically, it ain't being bought by somebody in Pittsburgh. Typically, it's being bought if you can get, if you can ratchet up the valuation enough through sequential rounds of financing and hit your fundable milestones and, and, and build this business. If you're getting bought out at a really high enterprise value, traditionally, you're getting bought by someone in New York or California. And oftentimes, what happens is most of those jobs leave. Not to mention the insurance companies in Pittsburgh that used to uh, underwrite the insurance for these companies. All of the other tangential businesses and service providers that depend on those businesses growing here and growing where they were planted, that business all goes away as well. So it's, I think it's, it's important stuff. It's, it's not that uh, businesses shouldn't be sold and they should be run by the same people and owned by the same people into perpetuity. But, but from the outset, right, it, 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 it's completely contrary to the way business owners and operators here in this region think about their businesses. They, right now, we're turning these business plans before they're even businesses. The plan is how do we turn it into a financial asset? It sounds like with Localize, a big part of your mission, so to speak, is education and trying to teach these owners and you know even students coming out of school that have been learning about what we talked about, the finite and infinite games. They've been taught the rules for the finite game, even though they're about to play the infinite game. Can you describe the two and how that education works into what you're doing? I kind of laid out a little bit of the framework here where it's like as a region, as a city, as, as a place that is trying to grow and attract more young people and attract more capital, we've set up the rules of the game. I, I think it, it's, it's very often helpful to like playing finite games is in and of itself not a bad thing, but you still have to understand the game you're playing in the context of the greater meta game at play. And if you lose sight of that, what ends up happening is, is it leads to a lot of frustration and confusion. So yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a re-education process in the sense that moving back and kind of getting ingrained into the entrepreneurial ecosystem here, it was so common for me to hear, and, and this is something that I heard in my past life selling uh, financial products, was, oh my gosh, these people are so risk averse. Um, they're so risk averse. It's unbelievable. 
I, I always have to pause. And I, I, I thought this whenever it was a financial advisor client of mine. And I think it whenever I talk to a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs, no, this person is not risk averse. They have an aversion to the risk they're being sold. The ecosystem is trying to, to suck more money into the system to play this very defined game. Venture capital serves a very specific purpose when done the way it is intended to be done, right? Like you're investing across a basket of, of ideas or businesses. Uh, you're, you have, you know, a basket of X number of idiosyncratic risks where each idiosyncratic risk has a potential to create such a massive return that if the majority of them fail as they so often do, then, you know, just the, the, the two or three successes within the portfolio will return a, a great return. It's a, a mechanism that is designed to fund very specific things. But given that banks aren't giving loans and money's hard to come by when you're a young person and whatever, it's venture capital has become this thing where it's thought of as like our savior. You know, so you look at like a lot of like the, you know, the venture capitalists in some of these small cities, they're, they're looked at as the potential savior, right? Like they hold the key. Like if only we had more money, we would have so many amazing businesses and so much success and so much wealth. We just need more money. We just need more money. And so it, it's, it's reinforming this at an ecosystem level, thinking about what is the game we're playing at the ecosystem level? What are the finite games that are being played within the broader, more infinite game that we're playing as an ecosystem? Finite games are from a book written by James Karsh. It's like kind of like game theory on the edge of like kind of like philosophy, which is which I love to kind of geek out on and think about. But finite games are games that where, where you have known players, there's like known boundaries, known roles, and kind of defined objectives. Thinking about the entrepreneurial ecosystem, we have known players such as incubators and economic development corporations. We have the investors, the institutional invest investors. We have angel investors and angel syndicates. We have all the universities. They're, they're these known players in the ecosystem. And the thought process is, if we can get these ideas out of the universities and start to commercialize them, we can utilize all the resources in the ecosystem, play this game. And the game is to, to optimize for building businesses that, have, that achieve really massive enterprise values where many people within those organizations own stock so that you can reach a liquidity event, whether that be an, a, a large acquisition or an IPO. Um, and once we, once we get a few of these like really big exits, all of that money is going to be recycled back into the entrepreneurial ecosystem and create more and more and more. And that's what, that's what happened um, out in the Valley. Right. And so we find ourselves playing this game, but we're looking at a lot of the stakeholders in the region going, why aren't they playing the game? Why don't they see how serious this is? Like this, we're building businesses here that can change the course of this city. Why won't they give us their money? Why won't they invest in this model? So we've been playing this game for a very long time, and there's a lot of frustration and confusion around why so many people don't engage. So people get in their heads, well, there's no money here in Pittsburgh. That's, that's wrong. It's, it's dead wrong. 
there's tons of money here. And this, this notion is kind of perpetuated within the ecosystem also that money is a commodity. And I, this is something Brent talks about a lot and it, it kind of plays into some of this game theory stuff. Um, but money's not a commodity because it's attached to people and people have preferences and needs and wants and fears. What we're trying to do is to educate the entrepreneurs and, and show them like, look, there's another way you can actually play a game that makes sense to the stakeholders that are here that are playing an entirely different meta game than you, right? They're playing an, an infinite game. So an infinite game is there are both known and unknown players. The rules of the game can change. And the, the, the purpose, the objective of the game is to perpetuate the game. And, and, you know, so like they say, like there, there is actually but one infinite game. It is life. The people that run these larger multi-generational organizations are playing an infinite game. They're managing for the very long term for survivorship to pass something on to a future generation. And once you start to think about that in that fashion, then it start that their actions and their behaviors start to make more sense. So then we can ask ourselves, well, can we meet them where they are? Maybe, maybe they would be willing to contribute resources. Maybe they would be able to be willing to mentor and to invest on terms that actually make sense to the game that they're playing. How do you take the, maybe it's not exactly private equity, what localized would be doing, but that model seems to be a very finite model and that you acquire, run, and then sell at some point. And so, so what is your thoughts around trying to meet them at their infinite game using a buyout strategy of sorts? Yeah, so it, it's something I think a lot about, and I think that our strategy is going to evolve through time. So everything I'm about to say is, is a result of we're just getting started. This is the first time we've done this. People do similar things, you know, similar components of what we're doing, uh, we're trying to bring those things together and do it underneath one umbrella for a common purpose. So the things that I wanted to kind of do away with were, were the notion of making an investment strictly for the exit at a higher price. So the majority, if you think about the three stakeholders, the, the LPs that we're engaging, they, they're, they're frustrated potentially with Johnson & Johnson's business plan not changing in decades and the price changing by the picosecond and they can't understand why. They're having trouble with holding for the long term where there's like this massive liquidity mismatch with all of their assets. So they, they, they're looking at these, these businesses and, and what, they, what they want is they want to participate in the operations of this business that is generating free cash flow. The way we're structuring the fund one, which is what we call the recap fund, is we want to invest in these multi-generational family businesses. We don't want to take a control stake. We want to take a passive stake. Um, you know, we want to buy passive preferred shares to participate in the business. We're less interested in the upside, but we do want a higher yield. We, the, the cost of the capital to them is going to be higher than if they went and got a bank loan. We're investing in that way for, for, with passive preferred shares. So the, the, the other motivation is if you, if you're, if you're trying to change the nature of the investments you're making and the types of companies you're investing in. You're changing that portfolio math. Like I was talking about, venture capital is a very specific thing, and there's portfolio math that is associated with that. If we want to invest in growth companies in our in our region, geographically constrained, which is you know difficult, 
well, we need to change the, the terms of the investment. We also have to change the LPs that are coming in. The idea being the operating companies, the people, the people who are staunchly independent and own these multi-generational operating businesses, they are the perfect partner for us because they have the capital and they have the insight and the time preference that allows us to make these investments in a different way. So what I mean by that is, so in the growth company portfolio, we're utilizing um, to start, we're, we're utilizing the Indie VC style investment terms. So again, it's, it's non-exit based. It, it maintains a significant amount of optionality for the founders of that business. So we're not doing a cash for equity transaction with, the, with these growth stage companies. We're, we're giving them cash and in return, we're getting, we're getting an equity option. That equity option is only executed when the founders decide to do one of three things, raise more money, in which case we get first rights of refusal, and we will support them in that and help them raise. If they sell or if they IPO, then whatever underlying equity option we still have in that company, the investment will convert to equity. Say they don't do any of those three things and we get into year four after the investment we start taking a percentage of net revenue and we take a percentage of net revenue until we've made three times our money back. Every time we take a percentage of net revenue, they're buying back a piece of underlying equity option that we own. So they're shrinking the potential dilution from the investment. And so what that allows us to do is provide liquidity to our LPs and to keep our incentives aligned with the founders so that they can maintain the optionality where if four or five years down the road, they say, hey, you know what? Maybe this is not a venture scale business. Maybe this is not a winner take all scenario or a winner take all market. Maybe this isn't a land grab. Maybe I don't need to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to, to get where I need to go. We, we don't have skin in the game that forces us to get them to do that. So we're keeping our incentives aligned where they can maintain their optionality. So it's non-exit based. So the reason that the operating companies are the perfect LPs to invest in this portfolio from my perspective is if they own their pro rata ownership in our growth fund, they're going to own it as a result of other LPs from within our location, within our city, buying a piece of their company. So what happens just as like a hypothetical, we invest $5 million in XYZ manufacturer. The LPs are investing in XYZ manufacturer. That's a multi-generational family business. We want them to continue to run it for survivorship and unlevered free cash flow. The XYZ manufacturer pays a dividend to the LPs. That $5 million goes to buy a pre-tax stake in the growth company portfolio. And that changes our ability as portfolio managers to invest on different terms in the growth company portfolio because our IRR clock doesn't start at year zero with negative $5 million. XYZ Manufacturing Company, the family that owns it, got $5 million in, $5 million out. So our IRR clock doesn't start until they pay their first dividend at the end of year one. That's how we're changing the dynamic. So we're not investing in, in the old boring manufacturing business to try to apply leverage and flip it at a higher multiple or at some point down the time down the road for a higher price. Likewise, when we're making investments in the growth company portfolio, because the nature of our patient capital, what instead of having to swing for the fences, we can hit doubles. And because that pro rata ownership is essentially owned on leverage, we can provide very attractive IRRs and we can trade the market that's in front of us. We don't have to 
use financing terms that work really well on the coasts and use those financing terms and try to make the companies here look like a business model that should be venturable. We can actually trade the market that's here. People can build real businesses and scale them sustainably with our terms. Are you pitching them a very long horizon or are you saying that you can return their capital at an ongoing rate? We can be a little more patient. So taking 3x on the investment seems like a high cost of capital, but when these emerging growth companies have no other option, we need to we need to try to unlock that capital by making it attractive to these LPs. So, but what where we do have some leeway is not taking cash out of that growing business really quickly because we have to. The complexity of them of the of the operating companies, the families that own those operating companies owning their pro rata stake in the growth company portfolio because they own that pro rata on leverage, we can stretch those payments out which allow the companies, the underlying growth companies to recycle a fair amount back into their business for growth. So the idea is from from years four to you know 13, if we can recoup greater than a 2x return at, at a portfolio level from, from revenue share, that's a healthy return. Oh, by the way, if you've in that time period built sustainable businesses that can recycle the free cash flow that you help them generate, they can recycle that back into future growth. And these are good, healthy, sustainable businesses. We still, we are, our, our LPs still own an underlying equity option in those businesses. Some of the biggest exits that we have from the Pittsburgh region are not like high tech growth companies, right? So there was, there was a, a, a dog food company in Meadville that they did like co packing or white label for like Rachel Ray, sold to Smuckers for $1.9 billion. That took decades and generations to get there. But a lot of our, our LPs have a kind of perpetual mindset because they're family offices. Owning that underlying equity option in a really healthy business that has the ability to grow, particularly if they're operating in a, in a relatively nascent market, you know, potentially attractive to them. When you think about these cash flowing businesses, is there a type of business that you like or dislike? What sorts of businesses are you going after? And is there a requirement on the characteristics of the owner specifically as well? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to, to mentality, um, getting to un- know and understand how they think of that asset. Are they thinking of it as a financial asset? Well, it, it's probably a little less attractive to me, right? Are they thinking about it as a means of storing wealth through time to hand on to future generations? Well, if that's the case, they, they, they probably have a feeling around running lower debt levels than their financial advisors are telling them they could, right? And, and they know like, well, that's, that's how we've been able to withstand cyclicality. That's how we've been able to withstand recessions and, and the like, right? Um, so a lot of it comes down to mindset, but the characteristics are then manifested in, in how they run their business and how they manage their balance sheet. Um, and really what they're optimizing that business for. So what's, what is potentially really attractive to me from a mindset standpoint also is we, we do have entrepreneurs coming out of these universities that are operating in these extremely nascent markets of AI and robotics and 
it's really interesting, cool stuff, right? And, and in the traditional model of investing in them, what we're asking them to do is to guess what the market's going to need eight years from now and go make that. What's potentially way more interesting is if we have an LP base that owns an entire asset, owns an operating business that is in a cyclical business, they have to plan around that cyclicality. And actually, many of them have a mindset where they know some of their competitors, especially the ones that are backed by private equity, are not planning for that cyclicality or, or seasonality, potentially as they should. So what happens is, is there's you know downturns and there's opportunities for consolidation and they can be the beneficiary of that because they've maintained a really healthy core. So if you can take that mindset where you're always looking for growth as this like older, more boring cash flowing business. You're always looking for growth, but you're really only going to swing for the fences maybe one year out of 10. And, and even then you're not really swinging for the fences, right? But you're, way, you're willing to wait for that fat pitch. If you can take that mindset, someone that has to operate a business in, in, in a very cyclical industry and transfer some knowledge that they've learned over decades or generations to a roboticist who is trying to commercialize something, they might, they might have some sort of a, a product that they can sell to someone at a profit, but it might be a small market, it might be a small but addressable market. That's not attractive to traditional venture. But if we can fund them in a fashion that allows them to build a smaller but sustainable component to their business to generate revenue, and to generate free cash flow that can be reinvested back into research and development, how nice would that be? If you were actually generating enough free cash flow that every time you wanted to do more R&D, you didn't have to go beg an investor for it, right? And further dilute yourself. So that, that's the idea is that if we can bring that mentality of operating uh, a, a large business in a cyclical industry, and take that patient capital approach to these roboticists and to these people that are commercializing these really interesting things, there's a potential that, that there are a few companies where that might be a more attractive option for them. And if they can sustain on the nascent market as it becomes less nascent, they will be very well positioned to swing for the fences. And at that point in time, my bet, is that when they start asking people in Pittsburgh for money to capitalize on that growth opportunity, they're not going to come back saying these people are too risk averse because these people will already be engaged with them. They'll already see them working. They'll know that they understand their business and can operate a profitable business. And now when there's a growth opportunity that's massive, they'll see how much money and how much support you can get from a city like Pittsburgh. So with your two funds, you have venture type, investments in one fund, i.e. creating new businesses, and then you have ones buying ones that have existed for quite a while and are more at the cash flowing level. How do you think about the the two types of investments? Usually when I come across a, a micro PE or permanent capital type firm, they're usually just doing the cash flowing and not the venture. How do you think about combining the two? Well, we'd like to, we'd like to take smaller businesses and get them to a place where we could potentially recap them in the future. <laughs> so we want to optimize them for free cash flow generation. So again, it's, it's transferability of learned lessons for building 
sustainable cash flows, who better to educate and invest in in a fashion that allows these growth companies to optimize than the people that have already done it, even if it was their their great grandfather or great grandmother that funded the business, they they understand how nice it is to own own a goose that lays golden eggs. That that's the way that that I think about it. And so like some of these companies may be venturable that we're investing in and they are opting for personal reasons not to go the venture route. Others just might not be venturable, but they can still fit into our mold because as a result of the complexity of the structure, we can invest in a fairly diverse basket of growth companies. And it's, it's again, to, to Brent's point about money not being a commodity, money is attached to people. And when you have terms, when you're giving somebody money on specific terms that directs their behavior. We think that we like the indie VC style terms because we believe that it will influence people to optimize for building sustainable revenues, building real good core businesses. And and that's that's what's so important is we're, we're, we're taking things that people are doing kind of in the permanent capital space or in like the junior equity space. We're taking what indie VC is doing and we're doing it under one umbrella in one region for the idea of creating more sustainable, large businesses here in this region. Do you have a few examples of companies you've come across or founders you've come across who have the, the finite mindset and then some who have the infinite? What kind of things do you generally see or characteristics do each of them have? We've kind of been talking about them generally, but do you have any specifics? Yeah, so I won't go into specifics on the finite players, but I can I can be more specific about the characteristics that I see. So, and, and James Karsh talks about this, I think, in in finite and infinite games, where it, it's almost uh, it, it's almost mandatory when you're playing a finite game to um, engage in some self delusion, right? So, if you're playing football, did you did you play football? I think right. I did. I played wide receiver. Okay, perfect example. You catch the ball. If if it wasn't drilled into your head that this is like this is war, right? You must win this game. You must score a touchdown in this certain period of time so you can win the game. That's the objective. So you catch the ball and you're running down the field and some massive guy is running at you and he is going to kill you. Right? So there's enough time on the clock, but you need to get as far as possible. You don't care. You don't want to go out of bounds. You don't want to stop the clock, say. You need to engage in enough self-delusion that this is so supremely important to you and your brothers in arms on the field that like, you, you must not go out of bounds. You have to lower your head, lower your shoulder, and take the lick. You have to engage in that self-delusion of making it this extremely important thing when in, in, in all actuality and in, in regards to your broader life, it's almost silly. Like if you, if you really take a step back and get rid of the delusion of it just being a finite game, it's just a, it's, it's a game. It's a game, right? If you allow yourself to do that, it seems like almost ironic or like silly or point being when, when you're, when you're seeing people who are engaging in that self-delusion in the sense that they, they're like live action role-playing what they think it is to be an entrepreneur. That's, that's what the model is designed to be in some regards, right? Because if in fact you are the CEO of a company, your role is to, to, to wear many hats, especially in the early stage, but is to be a capital allocator. 
you have different ways that you can get capital. You can utilize debt, you can sell equity, or the cheapest thing of all is sell something to someone at a profit. Well, if no one's going to give you money in the form of debt, well, that option's out. If you, if you don't have a product to sell yet because it's such a new business, selling things to clients is out. Well, your only option to get capital to allocate toward growth is to be an actor, is to sell a vision, is to go around and tell people why your vision of the world is going to be. And all you need is their money. And once you have their money, you are the person who is going to allocate that capital toward growth. You're going to hit your fundable milestones and you're going to go back and you're going to raise more money from more people at a higher valuation to give them a markup. And then you're going to do it again. If you're, if you're running a business, if you're an entrepreneur and you're treating your, your primary job as CEO, as actor or show person, showman, show person, I've heard people say, you know, their job is to be the showman. If you're doing that out of a sense of that being more fun, more sexy, less scary, or just being the thing to do, as opposed to going and hearing no a million times from customers and asking them why and figuring out if you could actually build a product for them, that's to me what I'm, what I'm considering playing the finite game. You're playing a game. If you're starting from a place of how do I add value to a customer? How do I sell something to someone at a profit? How do I, how do I take the proceeds of that sale and reinvest it into systems that can allow me to do this perpetually through time to compound returns, right? That's what a business is. Again, if you have something that is unfundable and you can't sell it, then you need venture capital. There's only, there's only one group of people that are crazy enough to make those investments. That's what venture capital is for in my perspective. They're, they're playing you know, the finite game. The, the most abundant examples of people playing the, uh, the infinite game come from these larger, more mature operating companies that are hiding in plain sight. But kind of in the, in the early stage space, perhaps an example of someone that I um, work with, I help, I help advise him and he is an early stage company. Maybe an example of that would be kind of interesting. He's a gentleman that runs a uh, robotics company uh, and he has this really, he was, you know, Went to Carnegie Mellon undergrad, PhD in engineering from Carnegie Mellon and developed uh, technology while getting his PhD. He graduated and started to commercialize it and he could sell. It's very similar to what I was laying out earlier. He can sell this technology, this, this piece of robotics that he has created. He can sell it to people at a profit, but it is a relatively small but addressable market. A lot of the advice he was getting when I met him was forget that, forget, forget the profit, forget selling into that small market for a profit. What you have could potentially be an amazing product five or six years down the road. All you have to do is go out and raise some money, build the product, tell the market what it needs. And, and, and it was actually, it's in, in the prosthetic space. So he does pr- prosthetic um, foot and ankles and he does like exoskeletons and things of that nature. So why not raise a whole bunch of money and create robotic prosthetics and create a business around that? Well, he had seen so many companies take a lot of venture money and they create these really, truly amazing prosthetics, but because it's difficult to prove the efficacy of these products, it's not like going to the eye doctors where they tell you lens one or lens two. Okay, 
uh, lens two or lens three, okay, lens two or lens four, it, there's nothing like that when you're trying on a foot or ankle prosthetic. So he didn't want to create something that would never get prescribed to people because the insurance companies wouldn't pay for it because they couldn't prove the efficacy of it. So he created this prosthetic, uh, robotic prosthetic foot and ankle that is an emulator that can spit out data. And the hope is that someday you could use it to prove the efficacy of, of these prosthetics. So, you know, the questions that I was asking him when I met him were very much based on like, what is it you want? Like, why, why are you doing this? You know, like he, he was kind of clearly going through an existential crisis. And I like to say that I like threw gasoline on that fire. And what he ultimately, I think, you know, the conclusion he came to, what he wanted was the, this, this idea of building, of selling this thing into a small addressable market to generate free cash flow that can be reinvested to like kind of like his dream is to have his own like robotic skunk works. You can't do that if you take someone else's money on a, on a venture track. You need to be very acutely focused on, on making one thing, commercializing it and selling it. Are there other private equity firms in Pittsburgh that do just that exist or are there others that are that have a somewhat similar mindset to acquisitions no there there's like just there's more traditional there's a few traditional private equity um sponsors there are a handful of fundless sponsors um funny enough i just talked to a guy earlier today who used to work at bain capital and used to do mezzanine debt for them and he's in chicago and he told me because of where valuations are in the private markets, a lot of these big players in private equity are starting to do these passive preferred stakes or these like junior equity stakes in private businesses so that they can start to cultivate relationships should they ever want to sell in the future. Interesting. Um, so I found that to be kind of interesting because like, again, that's, that's part of our game plan. Like, we want to cultivate relationships and set a similar mindset, show these people that we have a similar mindset and, and, and that we want to keep these assets here and to remain stakeholder centric and independent. And, uh, and we think that there will be opportunities as a result of that to do things above and beyond buying small passive shares of these companies. I'm fascinated that at, by what, what companies will do as valuations grow and increase, what they're going to do something to try to find those returns. Like, what are they going to have to do beyond just paying higher multiples and using you know more debt to do it? I'm fascinated behaviorally by what what sorts of tactics and strategy they're going to need to use. Instead of like totally taking your ball and going home, you can use it as an opportunity to cultivate relationships. Um, and the way I look at it is if we can show, if we can show these business owners that, that our incentives are in line, aligned with theirs, that we value patient capital, that we are truly stakeholder centric, sometimes people just have to sell. Sometimes there is no good continuity plan, right? And what I don't want is for that asset to then be financialized. Why can't we replace patient capital with, with more patient capital? So that, that, that's, that's the mission. That's what we're over a longer arc of time, what we're trying to do. If you could teach a class in college about literally anything you wanted, what would you teach and why? I am so not qualified to teach students anything, I feel like, uh, and I really should not be shaping young minds, but I think it would have to be some sort of like seminar style course and having something to do with like philosophy and business. 
and having kind of like an open architecture, like conversational way about it. Right. Because I feel like that, that would be fun. I would enjoy it. I think I could stoke some decent conversation, but more than anything, I would be able to learn ton from the students. Right. Like as a result of that. So yeah, that's what I, that's what I would want to teach something along those lines. And then what was the most fortunate event that happened to you that was completely random? Kind of cheesy to answer about who I'm married to, my wife, but totally random event would be that we actually grew up uh, three doors down the street from one another. So her family moved here, moved to Pittsburgh from New York when she was young, and my family moved on to her street uh, a few years later. And we never dated until, until after college, actually. Totally random thing that has kind of changed the course of, of my life. Did you know her as a kid? Oh yeah. Like we have pictures, like her family used to uh, vacation in Cape Cod where her grandparents lived. And we went up there on vacation one year and there's like pictures of us as kids, like outside of a restaurant in Cape Cod. And like the first Steelers game I ever went to, uh, her dad got tickets from work and gave them to my dad. I think the first concert I ever went to was John Cougar Mellencamp and they were his tickets from work also. And like our family went with her family. So yeah, like we spent like a lot of time together, actually. Unbeknownst to me, uh, she had a crush on me growing up. I had no idea. So like it, it, she, it, she's going to kill me for telling this on a podcast, but in, she has a di- like in her diaries, it says like Catherine Claire Ellis. <laughs> that's awesome. What a great, what a great random event. That's my favorite so far. What's the best business that you've come across? There is a uh, concrete plant that is beneath the Liberty Bridge, just uh, across the river from, uh, to cross the Monongahela, as we say in Pittsburgh, just across from downtown Pittsburgh, uh, there's this concrete plant. And it says, Frank Bryan, you can see it from, from the other side of the river. And it's a company that I'm like super recently like fascinated with, just the history and everything. It was actually in the, one of the Batman movies that was filmed in Pittsburgh. Uh, it was, there was a scene where they shot there. Um, but it's a company called Brian Materials, um, and it is crazy, crazy cool. 135 years, fifth generation, started as an excavation company. The great-great-grandfather started it. His name was Frank O'Brien. There was a lot of bigotry toward Irish back then. So he, he was doing excavation at the time, and he painted, and I, I hope I'm getting all the history right, but I, it'll be close enough to be, for, I think, people to be somewhat fascinated. He changed his name from O'Brien to Brian and changed the spelling and told people, I think, that he was like Welsh Protestant and painted his buggies that he used for excavation orange. So this is 135 years ago. So it's in the fifth generation is working there now. They own a, dr- a dredge out in the middle of the uh, Ohio River. And they dredge the river. And on the dredge, it creates gravel and sand. So they own the dredge. It spits the, the gravel out one side into barges that they own sand out the other side onto barges that they own tugboats towboats that they own come and pick these barges up and they sell this stuff to concrete plants all around the region and also use it to supply their own concrete plants they own their own cement trucks pretty sure they probably have like a limestone quarry but like kind of like this entirely vertically integrated business that has been here forever right 135 years is a long time but just super interesting super intriguing uh, I met one of the fifth generation and talked to him over coffee for like two and a half hours. And like, I didn't want the meeting to end. I wanted to learn more. He was telling me so many amazing stories about 
just relationships they have with builders in the region that go back three generations and it just just really amazing stuff and 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 the way they think about perpetuating that business playing the the infinite game is just really intriguing to me and i and just so many amazing stories how do they make sure that the next generation keeps the business in the family and doesn't get bored or want to do something else and so none of the kids take it on like how do they keep that going just who they are so like there are way more kids than two kids in the fifth generation but only two of them are involved i don't know that if this is what they do but many many um many family companies will set up separate board boards of governance so there's like a board of governance for the people that are running the company but then also like a board of owners and the the purpose of a board of owners would be to educate the owners on what it means to be patient capital and why maintaining the health and longevity of this goose that lays golden eggs the, the perpetual capital base is what allows it to be perpetual and it provides a lot of people with a nice lifestyle right so it's like this like sense of duty and separating it out where the economics for the people who are engaged in the business, have an incentive to perform well above and beyond the incentive that the owners have to just be patient capital and not mess with anything. That's fascinating. Thank you very much, Andy, for joining me today. This was awesome. I'm fascinated. I'm looking forward to chatting very soon. Thank you uh, for having me on uh, and getting my nerves out on my first podcast. It felt pretty good and appreciate you uh, inviting me on and spending some time talking. Of course. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.